Welcome to Douglas Wilson's podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Out now, as of yesterday, 420, Douglas Wilson's book, Devoured by Cannabis, Weed, Liberty, and Legalization. In this brand new book, Douglas Wilson argues that liberty for potheads means tyranny for everyone else, including the smokers enslaved by the drug. This book is a blunt rebuke of high society. Get it today at canonpress.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 190. 190. So I want to talk about the nature of rights, the nature of rights, and I want to talk about the need to defend them because there are two stages to this. We are in a, uh, a unique situation in our day, and in the secular world, there has been an erosion of understanding of the nature of rights at all. And in the Christian world, it sometimes seems to pious Christians that to defend your rights or stand up for your rights or to draw the line and insist on your rights is somehow not Christ-like. It's somehow not turning the other cheek. It's somehow you find yourself in a conflict with a civil magistrate, not because you're loving your enemy and because you're preaching the gospel, but rather because you're not giving up your guns, for example. So, I want to talk about the nature of rights, and I want to talk about the need to defend them. Now, I said in a recent blog post that Protestant resistance theory begins very early on. In the, when the Reformation began, it wasn't long before persecution began in the Catholic powers. And um, John Calvin, you see the first glimmer of the right the responsibility of lesser magistrates to resist encroachments or tyrannies by the sovereign, by the king. And Calvin advances this very gingerly. He, Calvin is a defender of order and doesn't want everybody winging off uh, creating their very own republics. So, he, he very gingerly advances the idea of resistance to the, to the overarching sovereign on the part of lesser magistrates, your provincial governor or your mayor or, or, the, or the sheriff, lesser magistrates saying, no, you can pass that law, but I'm not going to enforce it, you know, that sort of thing. So, Calvin does that. Uh, also, in Calvin's lifetime, when persecution began against the Huguenots in France, a number of the French nobility had become Protestant, had become had embraced the Reformation. And in that system, a number of these noblemen had armies. So, it was not, uh, it was not simply, oh, here's a rich guy who became a Protestant. Oh, here's a rich guy with this small army that became a Protestant. And what do you do when persecution breaks out and a number of the leaders of the persecuted body have armed soldiers that they can summon? What do you do? Well, an early, um, an early book arguing for defensive resistance to tyranny was a, a book by an anonymous Huguenot named, uh, uh, the book was Vindicii Contra Tyrannos, A Vindication Against Tyrants, which Canon Press has just recently re-released. Uh, that was sort of a robust 
defense of the right of Christians to defend themselves. And then, as the doctrine of Protestant resistance theory got to places like Scotland under uh, John Knox and then also George Buchanan, the doctrine became increasingly robust, uh, where, you know, Calvin is allowing it under certain limited circumstances. And by the time you get to Buchanan, the idea is that uh, resistance is mandatory uh, when, when tyranny occurs. And then throw into the mix uh, Rutherford's uh, great book, Lex Rex. So then what happened in the 1600s is that this movement toward uh, resistance theory was picked up and presented in secular garb by John Locke. And now, the American colonists were uh, very aware of books like Vindicii. They were aware of that, but they were also influenced by Locke. Locke himself was the son of uh, Locke's father, had served in the parliament in England under Cromwell and was part of that Puritan world. Uh, John Locke, although he, he John Locke was a, a professing Christian of some sort, but he's not what we would call a dyed in the wool. Puritan, but he was certainly indebted to that tradition. He was certainly he certainly drew on a lot of um, Puritan thought that went before him, Protestant and Puritan thought that went before him. And so Locke, basically in his secular form, is the right wing of social contract theory, where people like Rousseau and Hobbes might represent the left wing of uh, social contract uh, theory. But that that whole thing is detached from. The, um, the scriptures are detached from the creation account as it gives an account of itself, which I think is a radical long-term mistake. Now, fast forward. We, th- this, is where, this is why uh, we were able to say in the Declaration of Independence that, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The preamble to the Idaho Constitution expresses gratitude to Almighty God for our freedoms. Now, if Darwin is right, and if there is no God, if John Lennon is right, there's no heaven above us, if those people are right, you have no more rights than any other random collection of protoplasm that might be wandering about. There are no rights. In the theory of rights that we are advocating, these rights are absolutely dependent upon the doctrine of creation. We are created beings. We are not evolved beings. God, once first there was nothing, and then God put the world here. And because God put the world here, and because God created us in his image, we are commanded to respect that image in one another. This is where Christians have to frame it carefully. We don't want to get to the point where we are standing on the park bench, beating our chest, saying, I got my rights, see? You can't take away my rights. You can't, you, you can't do this. Like everything else in this world, when we stand up for rights, what we're doing is we're standing up for our neighbor. When a consistent Christian is defending his own rights, what he's doing is actually defending the rights of his neighbor. If you defend yourself, you are contributing to a society where defending yourself is okay, it's allowed, it's, it's part of the accepted response to these things. If you fold 
if you capitulate, if you say, oh, whatever, you know, whatever they say, whatever the people in charge think their, their authority entails, I'll just go along. What are, you, what are you doing? You are betraying everybody up and down your street. You are betraying everyone. You're saying, I'm, I'm going as a martyr for Jesus. No, you're not. There are times, obviously, when martyrdom is what God calls us to. There are times when they've got you and, you, and you're handcuffed and, and they say, deny Christ or die, and you say no, and, and they hang you or they chop your head off or they burn you. Or, well, that kind of martyrdom really is glorious. But you don't want to be the quote-unquote consistent Christian who is fulfilling the role that Churchill described when he was talking about an appeaser, someone who throws everyone else to the alligator hoping to be, hoping to be the last one eaten. You want to defend your—if you're the head of a house, you have to defend your children, you have to defend your wife, you have to defend your people. And when you're doing this, you can do it in a way that's not selfish or self-absorbed or self-centered. You are to be a wall of protection for your family, and when you are consistently, when you're standing up for your right to speak freely, your right to worship God, your right to defend your family, when you're standing up for these things, you are standing up for the rights of every man. You are saying the civil magistrate is not God. So, we're continuing on with um, podcast episode 190, and we've come to our hamartiology section. This is our study of sin segment. And this is where we study the various words of various sins in the New Testament. Our word today is diagonguzo, diagonguzo, which is translated as murmuring, both times in the Gospel of Luke. Let me spell that for you, D-I-A-G-O-N-G-G. U-D-Z-O. That's quite a jawbreaker. Diagonguzo. So, in both cases, in Luke, it was the same kind of behavior that provoked the murmuring, which indicates that it was a version of pious muttering. Okay? Pious muttering, which the pious are frequently good at. With the first case, all kinds of tax collectors and sinners flocked to Jesus, and this is what set the fastidious off. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, There it is, murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Luke 15, 2. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. We would say, you know, there was a pious tisk tisking. The second time it happened, it was because of the Lord's treatment of one particular individual from that same category, the tax collector and sinner category, one Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, 7. It says, and when they saw it, they all murmured, there it is again, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. So, in both cases, the godly, and I do have scare quotes there around godly, were upset that Jesus was hanging out with the disreputable. They were upset that Jesus was hanging out with the tawdry, the the people who are not quite respectable in pious circles. They weren't quite accepted in places where holiness was supposed to reign. And, um, but Jesus busted all the categories, and he provoked, he provoked that kind of murmuring, which, since remember, we're talking about hamartiology here, that kind of murmuring is sinful. 
when you murmur against someone reaching out to sinners. Sinful. So, last segment in this uh, episode of the podcast, episode 190, is um, my book review. This is an interesting one. This is a book called Answered Prayer by Jim Wilson. This is by my father, Jim Wilson. And the, the subtitle is The Faithfulness of God Made Manifest. So, Answered Prayer, The Faithfulness of God Made Manifest, Jim Wilson. Now, I have uh, something of a privileged seat on uh, this topic because I grew up in my dad's family. And I can testify to the fact that part of the culture of our family was the expectation that God would answer prayer. Now, it was never thought of in a vending machine way. It wasn't like you you put your quarters in and you always got your M&Ms. But it was just part of the expectant. You expected God to answer prayer. You expected God to um, respond to specific requests that were made. And of course, my dad was the one who was responsible for leading us in this and sort of setting the pace, setting the expectations, and so on. And the thing that's good about this book is that it begins with the theology of it, begins with the uh, teaching of Scripture on answered prayer and the different kinds of requests and the different kinds of intercession and so on. And it's very clear, he could have written a a book that was simply called Instances of Answered Prayer, where he told story after story. And these are stories that I've heard my entire life and where God remarkably undertakes for his people and remarkably answers prayer. But you don't want to just hear someone else tell stories and go, whoa, and then say, man, I I wish that happened to me, or "I I, I wish I could see that just once myself. So, what, where this book, Answered Prayer, um, begins is with what the Bible teaches. And what the Bible teaches is accessible to all Christians. If my dad just told the stories, you might come away thinking, well, it's all very well for Jim Wilson, that's all very well for George Mueller, or that's all very well for someone who has a remarkable series of answered prayers. That's, that, that's all very well, but that's not for me. He begins with the scripture and he begins with the scriptural teaching. And what you want to do is read this book and read the first portion of it, looking for the uh, God to build the infrastructure in your life where you start to anticipate answered prayer as a regular sort of thing, not a blue comet once in a, you know, once in a while sort of thing, but as a regular feature of your life, not, and, and not as though God is a vending machine so that you can begin to take him for granted and begin to think that you're in control of it. There's the vending machine, you've got the quarters, right? You're not in control of this. It really is intercession. It really is petition. But it runs along certain grooves. When we learn how to pray the way the Bible instructs us to pray, uh, one of the things you should be looking for is answered prayer. So this book is called Answered Prayer by Jim Wilson.